So when I was getting ready for this message this morning, I came across a, a story that was just kind of funny to me. It was about a guy who was trying to sell an old television of his, really just get rid of an old TV of his. And it, it wasn't super old or anything. He just didn't need it. He was sitting around the house. It was a little outdated. So he sat it out by a sidewalk with a sign that said, free TV. And he lived in kind of a residential neighborhood with a lot of foot traffic. It was a nice day. And so there were a lot of people walking around, and they walked by it, and they looked it up and down. But nobody took it. They all just like kept walking and going. And he, he was kind of frustrated with it because he thought, nobody wants this free TV. So then he just had this crazy idea, and he thought, I'm not getting rid of it anyway, so I might as well try it. He put a new sign out. It said, TV for sale, $20, or best offer, inquiries inside. And within five minutes, somebody stole that TV. Yeah. Well, they stole the TV. He wasn't real tore up about it. And it just, you know, maybe that story has something to say about the fallen condition of humanity, but, but really it has another lesson in there too. Sometimes free is not the best deal you can get. And I know that sounds kind of backwards because like a free TV surely is a better deal than even paying $20 for a TV. But in this case, people would see this TV that was for sale for nothing and think it wasn't worth anything. Like, he must not want it. It must not be working or functional or something. There has to be something wrong with this. And so in their mind, the value was zero. And then even by just increasing it to $20, all of a sudden this TV was worth something. And it seems counterintuitive. If you really want to get rid of a TV, you can't give it away. You have to sell it for super cheap. It sounds counterintuitive, but sometimes a little counterintuition is exactly what the doctor ordered. And we experience that in our own lives too. But oftentimes when we experience that useful counterintuition, it's not humorous, it's really frustrating. Because we're not trying to like get rid of an old TV, we're trying to navigate the twists and the turns and the complications of life. That's kind of the heart behind this message this morning as we continue with part two of our series, Footsteps of Faith. This series is all about this road of life that we're on. We're all walking this path, and, and we could go right, we could go left, but really there's a path that God has called us to. It's a path of faithfulness, and it's a path that leads to blessing and reward. But sometimes walking that path feels like you're walking in a circle. There's a, a guy in the Bible by the name of Joshua who experienced this, that kind of backwards way of God, because he calls us to do things or to abstain from things or to cultivate attitudes in our heart that don't always seem to make sense. They might seem a little backward or they might seem a little out of place. They might seem a little counterintuitive. And Joshua experiences this in, in a very real and visceral way. We're going to read about that in Joshua chapter 6, verse 1 this morning. If you've got your Bibles and you want to follow along, just open up to Joshua 6. If you don't have your Bible with you, as always, we can follow along on the screens to the side or download the FCC Monmouth app on your mobile device and click the Sunday button on your navigation bar and you'll find sermon notes with passages already pulled up ready for you to use. So this morning we're talking about when God's directions feels like you're walking in a circle and we're just going to get into it, okay? Sometimes, maybe oftentimes, God's ways, God's instructions and God's word, it does feel like a circle, Walking in faithful footsteps sometimes feels like you're just walking around a big old loop, like it's this counterintuitive, backward way of living. Because like we said, God calls us to do things or not do things or to think a certain way or to cultivate attitudes of the heart that don't always seem to be the most expedient or the most practical in the world that we live in today. And so there's a temptation to ignore them. And Joshua had to have faced that temptation in this situation in Joshua 6. Here's a little bit of background. So Joshua has been chosen to be the leader of the Israelite army. And he is to lead a million or so people into the land of Canaan to drive out armies and people groups that are more numerous, that are stronger, and are more established than they are. 
It's quite a task. And the number one city, or the first city rather, that they come across in this new land is the city of Jericho, which happened to be like the best fortified city in the region. So God essentially sends the Israelites into Canaan with the same advice that people give on TV when a character goes to prison. He said, Joshua, I want you to march into that place and find the biggest, baddest guy on the block, and I want you to take him down just to set a tone so that everybody understands what's going on. That's what Joshua has to do. And that's not easy. So you would think with this sort of monumental task at hand, God would have some great advice for Joshua that he would give him some foolproof plan, some brilliant military strategy, and that's not at all what he gets. So let's look at Joshua chapter six, verse one. It says, now the gates of Jericho were securely barred because of the Israelites. No one went out and no one came in. Then the Lord said to Joshua, see, I've delivered Jericho into your hands along with its king and its fighting men. Here's the battle plan. March around the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Have seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horns in front of the ark. That's the Ark of the Covenant. And on the seventh day, march around the city seven times with the priests blowing the trumpets. When you hear them sound a long blast on the trumpets, have the whole army give a loud shout. And then the wall of the city will collapse and the army will go up, everyone straight in. So Joshua, son of Nun, called the priests and he said to them, take up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and have seven priests carry trumpets in front of it. And he ordered the army, advance, march around the city with armed guard going ahead of the ark of the Lord. So God's super important, foolproof, very practical battle plan for winning the day basically boils down to this. I want you to walk in a big circle and then blow some horns. And those walls will just come tumbling right down, which makes perfect sense, right? That's what walls do. Anybody that's ever demoed a house knows that the number one way to take down a wall is not with saws or hammers, but is to march around the room in a circle and then blow a kazoo. And those walls just fall right down, studs and all, right? No, God, that's not how walls work. That's not gonna, in what planet is this a a good military strategy? God, I'm trying to win a battle here. You've told me to drive out the city of Jericho. I have farmers and brick makers. We've walked around in the wilderness for 40 years. We are not a well-oiled military machine. I need some practical advice here. In the case of Joshua, following God's instructions wouldn't just lead him in figurative circles. It would lead him in a literal circle. Seven of them, actually, 13 of them to be exact. Six for the six days, seven on the seventh day. And sometimes that's how it feels when we're following God's instructions. He tells us to do things, or he asks us to do things, or to live a certain way, and sometimes it just seems out of touch. Like you and I, we're just trying to navigate life and get from point A to point B. And a lot of times in our mind, the best way to do that is the most expedient route, the most practical route, what seems like the most sensible route. But God's instructions and God's ways don't always lead us from A to B. Sometimes it feels like he's leading us over to C or D or Q before we circle back around and get to B. It can feel like God maybe doesn't always understand the kind of world we're living in. I mean, just a couple of examples. Listen to some of these. This is from the book of Matthew, chapter 5, verse 23. It says, Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. Go first and be reconciled to them, and then come and offer your gift. So if, if you have beef with somebody... The number one priority in God's book, even above worship and and making your offerings, is to go and be reconciled to that person. Now, we might say, but God won't. 
won't that mean having a really awkward, uncomfortable conversation? I mean, wouldn't it be a lot easier if we just kind of avoided each other and let sleeping dogs lie and just didn't really talk about the issue if we just avoided one another? Yes, it would be astronomically easier. Life would go so much smoother. But that's not what God has called faithful feet to do. He's called us to have those awkward and weird conversations. Here's another one. This is from Romans chapter 12. He says, Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it's mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. And if he were to stop there, I think we'd all agree. Like most cultures, most people would say revenge is not a good idea. It always causes more harm than good, but God doesn't stop there. He keeps going. He says, on the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. And in doing this, you'll heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So not only does God say, don't seek revenge, he says, go a step further. Be a blessing to those who offend or who oppose you. What? God, that doesn't make any sense. Wouldn't it be so much easier if, like, I just avoided those people in those situations? I mean, I understand not seeking out revenge, but you really want me to show kindness and blessing and and respect to those who offend and those who oppose me? God, that seems like I'm opening myself up maybe to be hurt a little bit more. I'm going to have to swallow my pride. That seems like it's going to be a really difficult thing, and it absolutely is. And yet God calls faithful feet to walk down this path nonetheless. Again and again, God's word is filled with instructions and commands to do things that don't seem most expedient or practical or easy in this life. It's almost as if God is walking or following us. In, in, I'm going to get the word, I promise. Leading us. Not, that's the one I want. Leading us in this kind of circular way of life. It's backwards. But here's something that we oftentimes neglect to consider. We hear these commands and we say, oh yeah, that's great for other people. But for me, eh, I don't know about that. I don't know if I can do that. What if, what if God knows something that we don't? And and what if he can see things coming that that we can't? What if he knows how the end of the story is supposed to be and he's just trying to lead us there? What if he's still God and we're not? That's really the question we have to wrestle with because we hear his commands and sometimes we can think, man, I don't know if that's practical or reasonable, but here's this deep, profound theological truth that we're going to see at play in Joshua's story. If God leads us in a circle, then we can trust that a circle must be best. And I know it sounds backwards, and I know it sounds counterintuitive, but if God is the one leading us in a circle, we really can trust that a circle must be what's best. Joshua's story is prime example. He gets this insane battle plan from God, and then he follows through with it. And on day one, he sends out the army. They march around the city. They blow their trumpets. They go home. Day two, they march around the city. They blow their trumpets. They go home. And then we get to day seven. This is in chapter six, verse 15 of Joshua. It says, on the seventh day, they got up at daybreak, and they marched around the city seven times in the same manner. Except on that day, they circled the city seven times. The seventh time around, when the priest sounded the trumpet blast, Joshua commanded the army, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. The city and all that's in it are to be devoted to the Lord. And that word devoted, that's a a peculiar Hebrew word. We don't really have time to dig into it, but it's it's special. We're going to touch on it in a minute. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall be spared because she hid the spies we sent. That was back in chapter 2 of Joshua. But keep away from the devoted things so that you will not bring about your own destruction by keeping any of them. 
Otherwise, you'll make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and bring trouble on it. All the silver and gold, the articles of bronze and iron are sacred to the Lord and they must go into his treasury. When the trumpet sounded and the army shouted, and at the sound of the trumpet, when the men gave a loud shout, the wall collapsed. So everyone charged straight in and they took the city. They devoted the city to the Lord and destroyed with the sword every living thing in it, men and women, young and old, cattle, sheep, and donkeys. So that's the story. Joshua follows this crazy battle plan, marches around the city seven times. They blow their trumpets. Walls come down, army goes in, and Israel wins the day. That's oftentimes how we tell this story, but, but just kind of going over the main points there, we miss the theological insights here that we talked about earlier. We read back in verses one through six that the Ark of the Lord was in this procession that's circling the city. The Ark of the Covenant was the symbolic presence of God on earth. It's more than just a fancy box. It was the most sacred thing on the planet to the Israelites. And the Ark is marching with the army. In fact, the Ark is kind of the centerpiece of this big circle. There's an armed guard at the front, and then there are priests with trumpets, and then there's the Ark. And what this represents is not just the armies of Israel marching around Jericho, but God himself was marching around Jericho. God was making war against this city. And we read in this passage in, in verse 15 and following, we said that, that special word, devoted, it was just kind of a special word. It means that this whole city was considered sacred to God. It was a sacrifice to him. It was his. And that's why all of the gold and the silver and the iron and the bronze, nobody could touch any of it because the spoils of that battle belonged to the Lord. He's the one who fought it. He's the one who had victory, so he got all of the spoils. What we have pictured here is not the, the armies of Israel and Joshua doing battle. This is a depiction of God himself bringing Jericho to its knees. This is a picture of God in the world that he made through his power and the people that he chose, fulfilling his promises and keeping his word and fulfilling his plans through his actions. It's a story about him. And when we pretend that this is a story about Joshua and his victory, we empty this story of its power. Sometimes that's how we tell it, as if this is man's victory. But that's, that undermines the point. God gave Joshua this circle, this indirect route, because he wanted to say something about himself. He wanted to do something that only he could do. If God had given Joshua practical military advice and said, Joshua, I want you to build this siege tower, and then I want you to get some oil and set some fires. I want you to starve out the city. If he had given him typical military tactics, this is no longer a story of something only God can do. This is a story of Joshua, which is not the point. You see, a circle was exactly what God needed in order to prove the point he was trying to prove. He is God, and he's in control, and he's going to keep his word. Sometimes the most direct route is not the best route. This is kind of like teaching your kids to pick up their toys in some ways. My son Levi, uh, he's three. He loves to get his toys out and scatter them all over the floor, which basically it's like a minefield of plastic at that point. And so we're trying to teach him to pick up his toys. And, but he's just, he's so slow about it. And parents, I know you've been here before. He takes forever. And it's not like he's typical slow three-year-old. Like he will get on his belly and he will say out loud, slow motion. He's so slow. It's like, buddy, I don't have time to wait on you to pick up a thousand Duplo blocks. I would much rather just pick them up myself. That would be faster. It would be easier be more expedient, I could get on with my day, but that completely undermines the point that I'm trying to teach, doesn't it? 
that you have to pick up your blocks when you get them out. Sometimes that's what God's instructions and words are to us. They may seem a little backwards. They may seem counterintuitive, but God's not really concerned with getting us from A to B in the most expedient time or fashion. Sometimes God leads us in that roundabout way, in that circle, because he has a lesson that he is trying to teach or prove or accomplish because it's his plan for your life that you can be the person that he created you to be and experience the blessing that he intends for you to experience. Sometimes a circle is exactly what we need. Or here's another illustration. Right now, uh, well, not now, I built a, a guitar in high school and right now I'm kind of in the process of fixing it up because it turns out when you build a guitar in high school, it's not very good. Uh, so we're fixing it up. And one of the things I need to fix on it is the tremolo. And that's the part on the, the body of the guitar that holds the strings, it stretches so you can play it and you can go wow, 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 which is just fun. And so I need to put a new one on and my tremolo is held on with six screws. So I need to take those off and then I need to fill those holes and drill new ones. And there is an easy way to do this, a direct way, and then there's a right way to do this. The easy and direct way is to just take a dowel rod, to put it in that hole, cut it to length, glue it in place, call it a day. That's easy and fast. It'll take me maybe 15 minutes and I can get on with the process. The problem is that the wood grain in the dowel rod runs vertically and the grain in my guitar body runs horizontally. So when those two meet, if I happen to drill in that spot, which I inevitably will have to do, my drill bit is gonna drift a little bit, or at least there's a potential it will. Maybe just a few millimeters, but in this particular case, a few millimeters is the difference between a guitar that plays in tune and a guitar that will never be in tune, so it kind of matters. The right way is a little more roundabout, and it's less direct. I have to get a board, not a piece of pine because it's too soft, but like a piece of maple, and then I have to find a, a plug cutter and bore into that so that when I get this plug, the grain is horizontal and you put it together and now, no matter where I drill, my bit isn't gonna drift. It's a little less direct, it's a little more involved, it's a little more time, and I'm gonna level with you guys, even though I know it's the right way, because it takes a little longer and because there are extra steps, I still have half a mind to do it the wrong way. Even though I know there's a potential it's gonna fail. And sometimes that's how we are with God's word. We know it's the right way. We believe it to be true. And yet because it's a little more roundabout or because it seems a little backwards and there is an easier expedient way, sometimes we're tempted to just forsake what God says and go with the easy stuff, the direct route. Why do we do that? Why do we freak out when God starts to lead us in circles? Why do we question and doubt what we know to be right and we know to be true? Maybe better question is, why are you guys kind of looking at the screen funny right now? Is it because everything's a little off? The only reason it looks weird is because your perspective right now is upright and true. If we were to all cock our heads to the side a little bit like this, why don't you just go ahead and do that with me this morning? Everything looks a little, little more normal, doesn't it? And that's because crooked vision can make crooked things seem normal. And the same is true when it comes to God's word and our world. You see, you and I, we grew up in a world that is a little askew, a little cocked to the side of the truth that God would have us live out. Because we live in a world with sin, where everything is just tweaked and twisted just a little bit from how God intended it. And you and I, we grew up in this kind of skewed world, where we looked at life through this lens, this cockeyed lens for so long, and we came to believe that this is normal. This is how things are supposed to be. This is the way that the world works. These are the priorities I'm supposed to have. This, this right here, this is absolutely normal. 
But when you come to experience Jesus and God's work in your life, something incredible happens. He starts to write your perspective. He starts to provide truth and a vision of this world and how it's really supposed to be, how it really works, what our priorities really ought to be. But you and I, because we grew up in this world for so long, sometimes we insist on looking at the world like this. And so what ought to be good and true and right sometimes looks a little funny because crooked vision makes crooked things seem normal and normal things seem crooked. Some of you understand what I'm talking about, but, but if you don't, let me just allow Scripture to kind of clarify it for us a little bit. This is Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, cockeyed, crooked vision, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, upright, true vision. And then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Or in other words, you won't freak out every time God starts to lead you in a circle because you will have come to understand sometimes a circle is exactly what's necessary. The reason Joshua could listen to God's crazy battle plan and follow it without even blinking is because he had upright and true perspective. He knew whose world this really was. He knew who was fighting this battle. He knew about God's plans and purposes. He knew exactly the truth that God was going to accomplish what God wanted to accomplish. And so without hesitation, he says, if you lead in a circle, that's where I'm going to follow. Let my feet be faithful to your command. And church, I want to assure you this morning, the owner of this world has not changed since the days of Joshua. We do not live in a world that is somehow radically different from his own in, in that God is still in control. He is still working his plans to fruition. He is still fulfilling his promises. He's still God, and we still aren't. Which means that if he is leading us in a circle, we can still trust, just like Joshua, that a circle must be what's necessary. We can look at his word, and sometimes it may seem backward. Sometimes it may seem out of touch. Sometimes it may seem like the, less, the least direct path to where we want to get, but we can trust that it's definitely the path that God will lead us and thinks best for us to follow. So sometimes, if we have beef with somebody, it is best to go have that awkward, uncomfortable conversation because it might mean that we are reconciled the way that God calls us to be. And sometimes... Whenever we are tempted to, to put God and money on the same level, we can listen to those words that Jesus speaks when he says you cannot serve both God and money. And, and maybe we should take steps to guard our hearts a little more carefully against the materialistic messages that are pumped into our brains every second of every day, even if it does seem a little odd to the world that watches. Or, or, or maybe if, if people offend us or oppose us, maybe we really should show kindness to them instead of retaliation or, in, excuse me, indifference. Even if it does open us up to experience maybe a little more hardship because through that, maybe others see the kind of mercy and forgiveness that God shows to us every single day. Maybe, maybe God's words, when they seem backward or they seem difficult, maybe the ones that challenge us the most and confront our comfort levels the most, maybe those are the ones that we ought to listen to the most and take the greatest pains to follow. Because if God's leading us in a circle, we can trust a circle must be best. Do not allow crooked vision, to overcome faithful feet. If God's leading, it's okay to follow. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you for your word, and at times, uh, frankly, at times it's hard to understand. Sometimes your commands and desires for our lives and our relationship and our conduct in this world 
It's not the most practical, and it's not the most expedient, but we trust you. You see our hearts, you see our futures, and you see who we can be. And we trust that you are working through your word and through your spirit to bring us to that end, to create in us a new heart, to renew our minds, to transform our beings, to look more like Jesus. Every time we forsake you and every time we abandon you, Father, you show us grace and we are thankful for that. It's a fresh opportunity to be faithful. And so, Lord, with a thankful heart, we just praise you. We thank you for your word. We ask that you would give us wisdom to follow your insights, that we would have the discipline to commit our lives to your calling, that our feet may be faithful, and we experience the blessings you intend for us. It's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.